Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those ears today. Ooh, I got something for you. I got something real special. So this dude by the name of Dave Shaby and a couple of other characters by the name of Mike Schultz and Andy Springer decided to write a book on virtual selling. And it is a badass book. Please welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, Dave Shaby. How you doing, brother? Doing great. Good to be here. Thanks. All right, man. Great intro. Yeah, thank you, man. Tell the folks about yourself a little bit. Yeah, sure. I'm the COO at Rain Group. We're a sales training and performance company. We were originally out of the Boston area. I've been with the company for about a year. Spent uh, the last 19 years before that with a company called Bright Horizons leading up marketing and certain sales functions. So I've been in the growth game for a long time, joined Rain Group, known those guys for 20 some odd years. Um, Always admired them. I was a customer. Uh, I was a guest in some of their courses and trainings and eventually we figured out that I should be a part of the team. So spent the last year trying to catch up and learn everything and it's been a good ride. And, And then COVID happened and we wrote a book. So lots of stuff is going on. Now, I saw in the book that you guys actually started writing this two years before this all happened. So give me a little, you know, what was the inspiration? If it started two years ago, what was the thought process back then? Yeah, I think the book, to be clear, the the book is a mix of virtual selling and selling. And so some of the things that we talk about in the book are things that we've been doing all along. Uh, the sales process and how you think about rapport and how you think about making cases. Those things have been around for a while. What we have been doing and had been doing prior to, prior to COVID is really thinking about um, virtual delivery and the whole medium. And so, you know, we'll, we'll confess to have not thought about writing a book on virtual selling. Uh, on March 1st, that wasn't our plan. But by March 15th, it was. And so we were able to quickly sort of think about, all right, what does is, what is the world need right now that we live in um, from a sales standpoint? It was clear that sellers were going to struggle a bit. And so we decided to take some of the things we'd already been working on, some of our sales uh, tried and true methodologies, and then really convert into a book that brought it all together. One of the things I like about, well, there's a lot of things I like about the book. By the way, I'm going to highly recommend the book. And I'm, this is not a recommendation just because Dave is on the show. He wouldn't be here if I didn't like the book. When I went through the book, I was like, this is really good stuff. Because I saw other books on virtual selling, remote selling, distance selling, all this stuff. And I was like, there's a lot of anecdotal stuff here. You know what I mean? There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. It was like a lot of stuff was being repeated over and over again. And what I loved about your book was, it wouldn't be on the obvious. I always say that's that's when you know it's a mark of a good book. And throughout the book, you have this comp- these comparison tables. I forget what the name phrase you use, but it was like before and after, like face to face versus virtual comparison. Yeah, three D, two D. We you know we use some of those those terminologies, right? And by the way, we're going to get into that because I really love that phrase. And so I'm going to recommend the book because I think, especially if you're in the enterprise business, this is the book. This is top top of the shelf book at the top. And so, and I've read several other books uh, regarding virtual selling and those surrounding them. And this was probably, in that market space, the best book. And it's no BS, a lot of great data. There was a lot of aha moments for me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think about that. Oh, I didn't know that. 
So let me just start, because there's so many places to start, but let me just start out with one simple study that you had, because I think this is really fascinating. There was a study of 500 buyers, and you said 82% of these buyers look up a seller's profile on LinkedIn. Now, I want to, I want to loop that in because people don't realize that that's part of virtual selling. Talk about, expand on that a little bit. Yeah, in the broadest category, you know, you think about, um, you know, how you build relationships and how you connect, right? So just let's use connect as the big category here. And so buyers and sellers are trying to connect with each other. In a virtual world, there's, there's different ways, right? Think about rapport building, relationship building, and even how you learn about people. In, in a prior world, right, we used to meet and talk and go out to lunch and have all of these sort of organic interactions. And now you're really forced to think about things more proactively. And so the first thing that buyers and sellers tend to do now in learning about each other is figure out who this person is, look them up on LinkedIn. And what people are looking for is not necessarily just the facts, but trying to make an emotional decision around whether or not this person is somebody who I'm going to get value from. See, that, that was it. That was it. Uh, first of all, the 82% was a shocker to me. Like, what? 82% of buyers? Yeah. But the whole thing of viewing the salesperson or viewing yourself as a salesperson as a brand, like an individual unit out there, is just totally a brain shifter. But to your point, in this environment, totally necessary. Yeah, agreed. And, and, you know, value is the key word at the end of the day here. Buyers want to get value from the seller, not just, not just the product or the service, the person. And so is this person going to be able to advise, figure out things that I didn't otherwise know, help me and collaborate with me? The clues are sitting there in LinkedIn and in other spaces where you might operate online. And so think about that. Your buyer is evaluating that either consciously or subconsciously. I love that. And by the way, so now that we're moving in towards, you know, help me make a buying decision, right? Can this person actually be consultative? In the book, you said something interesting. Like, I really read the book, man. Like, I took like... like I can tell. In the I book. can tell. And then you talked about, and this I thought was cool the way you did it because it was a sign of respect and also a sign of evolution. When you talked about Mac Hannon's book, Consultative Selling, which I'm just a fan of, right? I think that guy was way ahead of his time. But you talked about that it's so much, it's not that consultative changing itself has changed, it's evolved. Can add, some, add some flavors to that. Yeah, and so, you know, I guess there have been articles of, of some renown that have said the consultative selling is dead and there's a whole, you know, sort of wave of emotion behind all of that. Look, in our, in our estimation, and this, this is really, you know, I'm paraphrasing some of Mike Schultz, my, my, my partner and co-author's words here. Um, it's an evolution, but really think about it as the, as the emergence of a, a consultant seller. And the consultant seller is the type of seller who is willing to challenge the buyer, willing to think about things that are happening in the buyer's world that are beyond the sale, the product, the service, and to help the buyer see a new reality or some opportunity that didn't otherwise exist. If all we did was take orders, find out what the needs were and sell, that would sort of put us at a certain level. But the idea that you can be consultant-like and help the buyer see um, some opportunity and some new reality beyond the problem they show up with, 
that's where that sweet spot is. And in a virtual world, you know, you can double down on that now because some sellers are just able to barely show up. They're barely in the category of solution selling, right? They're barely there because they're just struggling with their tech. They're struggling with the hundred other things that are distracting people. They don't know how to engage in a meeting yet. They're, they're behind the curve. And so if you can both be an effective virtual seller and a consultant, then, you know, all of a sudden the interest level and the success is, 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 has, a, has a, um, a doubling effect and a really, uh, you know, an interesting opportunity for all. And, and I love that because, you know, I actually walked away inspired by the book. You know, it's not supposed to be a motivational book, so to speak, right? But you're, you're inspired by it because you guys pointed throughout the book, the upside of virtual. You know, everybody's wowsy, wowsy, woo-woo. You know, I can't be in the room with the person, therefore I can't sell. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Talk to me about the upside of virtual selling. Walk me through some of the big pluses. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We're trying to take the optimist view here in terms of there's opportunity, and it sort of goes along with what I just said, which is if we tried to solve sellers' problems, we'd teach them how to use Zoom and walk away, right? And so to the extent that there's opportunity here, the, the, the two big ideas that I'd like to bring forward are, number one, um, the idea that the pack is going to recede a little bit. So those who can emerge from the pack are going to have way more distance. Your ability to differentiate in a virtual world is greater because the pack has, has started to, or, or initially did, have, have a bit of a problem even showing up. So that was point number one. Point number two is there are certain parts of selling, certain types of case making, certain things that you can do that actually work better in a virtual world. So for example, if you are doing a discovery session and you're doing it live and you're in a conference room and you're trying to gather information, you know, more, more often than not in a complex sale, just getting information, having a good whiteboarding session, just the complexity of the whole thing tends to have a, a watering down effect. Time works against you. You don't have the data. What you can do in a virtual setting is, A, ask for the data in advance and use a lot of polling or different techniques or even just simple, hey, I'm going to send a survey out. Can you throw this out to 15 people in the company so I can gather information? It's a lot more natural in a virtual setting to do that. Number two, in a virtual setting, when you're collaborating with somebody, whiteboarding is an obvious play. And so you can put a really nicely structured ROI session together, for example, using whiteboards and using uh, tools that actually really engage very well. And so using the medium effectively for certain parts of case making and information gathering, you are at an advantage virtually because it's tighter. And there's techniques that you can use or that are that are quite effective and draw the buyer in. Those are the things that I, you know, I think are are, are pretty obvious to us. And there's others as well. Um, but you know, would be interested in no, your- no, no, I, not obvious to us, man. Obvious to the Rain Group, apparently, because I'm telling you, you, you mentioned this to people, go, I never looked at it that way. It's just a paradigm shift, right? The whole thing about asking for questions before you go to the meeting. By the way, also think of the fact that you're actually recording the session and now you can share it with your colleagues who might help you in the sale. There's so many advantages. Anything on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think of things that travel, right? So, so when you're dealing with complex buying groups and we all have had the frustration of, you know, you have your champion, you're selling to your champion, and all of a sudden, 
whatever you said in the meeting that was gold, whatever deck that you produced, whatever artifact came out of that meeting has to travel a couple of layers to a CFO or some other decision maker, and it gets knocked down and you don't quite know what's going on. So the recording of the meeting, the ability to co-create slides and annotate on those slides and put together a really tight sequence in a very short deck that can travel well because it feels more conversational and less produced. Um, imagine if you get a one pager as a decision maker that's got notes on it that are neatly done and this is the output of a meeting and it's got some real merit to it, 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 it travels well, right? And so the idea that you can create these things in a virtual setting, the recordings, the artifacts, the co-creation, and imagine that stuff a couple of layers away from you. Now, clearly you'd want the meeting with that person, but they're going to look at something too. Uh, so I think it may, it's not idealistic. Those things really do happen. And we, we've heard that the recordings themselves are just, just awesome to have. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you knew this, but I wrote a book on AI and sales, right? And so I have a podcast and so I interviewed, and it was a CEO of, oh, I forgot the name. I want to say it's people.ai, but one of the, or chorus. It could be that. But one of the things that shocked me, and this ties back into what you're saying, is that he said only 5% of the conversations actually make it into the CRM, which blew me away. Right. Because now with the recording, we can put that into the CRM and do some sentiment analysis or something on the thing and get more data. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's the analysis piece of it. There's the, uh, you know, it is, it's a shocking stat, right? I'm still sort of recovering from your 5% stat. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, to, to the extent that a lot of this is in people's heads and you want to have good analytics and a good ability to think about how do I navigate that next step? What really was important? I, I have to distill. I only get a certain amount of time and space. I've got to distill the next conversation down to a headline what do I want to achieve? What is going to drive the decision? Uh, there's, there's all those clues and factors, and you can get lost in the, in the sort of messiness of having a two-hour meeting and not necessarily having perfect notes. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's what drives it. Yeah, I think it would be interesting. Now, in the competency part, you had something in the book, uh, you guys had something, and you listed four things for competencies in this new sales world. And I'll just let me list them all out, and then we'll talk about them. you got to be more strategic more deliberate, more focused, and more proactive. The one I thought, the two were interesting to me were more strategic and then more deliberate. Talk to me about those two things, if I want to be successful in selling. Sure, sure. So let's start with deliberate and let's use rapport as, a, as an easy example, right? So rapport, you walk into a meeting, you're uh, in a live setting, you have the organic space where you can meet people, you show up, you've got coffee, lunch, et cetera. All the things that happen would enable a good social seller to build rapport without really even thinking about it. Do, do people really think, hmm, let me think of my top three rapport questions before I walk into this office, right? You just have a conversation, you meet people, you talk about families, kids, hobbies, the weather, and all of a sudden, you know, you find some connection point and you've got a relationship, right? Obviously easier said than done, but you get the point. In a virtual setting, none of that exists. It's really, really hard to create space. And so the deliberate part of it is I've got to make it happen, right? As the seller, now I have a new thing on my list, which is if I don't create rapport building space, it's not going to happen. We're going to have these stiff meetings where you know, I'm charismatic and all of that, but I'm not learning anything about my buyer. 
And so techniques like, hey, decision maker, you mind sticking around for a couple of minutes afterwards? I'd love to just talk about something that happened in the meeting. And you get a one-on-one and then you can say, hey, I noticed, you know, can you give me some advice? Oh, and by the way, you know, on your LinkedIn profile, I see you went to the same school as my friend, whatever, right? So, but you need to be deliberate. Ask for that permission, create the space, change up the way that you do introductions so that you're learning about people. All of that, the, the duration of it is is critically important on the relationship side. Um, The other piece on strategy and being more strategic, you've got to really think about every detail. And again, not in the, to the level of, uh, this is entirely different from from face-to-face selling, uh, but in virtual, if you think about a slide deck and you're strategically thinking about, all right, I've got this engagement thing. I've got to keep people focused on what's happening in the meeting and the medium is working against me. I've got to think about that. I've got to design a meeting and I've got to design it in a way so that when my slide deck is advancing, I use builds. I'm trying to re-engage people every three minutes to make sure that nobody's fading. I know that Victor is the decision maker, so I need to use his name every couple of minutes so that he doesn't start checking emails. Right? It's a, it's a thoughtful process around design that is strategic in nature and tactical in execution, but that strategy is key. And, and, you know, I don't think a lot of sellers sort of show up thinking about, I got to design a meeting. You know, I put an agenda together and we sort of work our way through it, but I'm talking about real design here. And it Man, matters. That, that, that just the last three minutes there was just pure gold in my book. That's like highly concentrated gold because in the sense that, you know, when we train people, we tell them, I said, look, we, and that's why I lo- the word that triggered me was deliberate. I said, as soon as I read that word, I go, I know what he means by that. I know what they mean by that. Yeah. And what you just, the example you just gave is perfect. Like, how do I, and I love your phrasing, by the way, how do you create that space? Make it purposeful and create that space. As you say, how do I, you know, even bullet points, as simple as, you know, building in bullet points or building out, depending on which way you look at it, right? Uh, I see people just splat their presentation. I'm like, why are you, why'd you splat 20 bullet points on that thing? That's not going to work. How do you pace it out every three minutes to find some engagement moments, all these little pattern interrupts? It is deliberate design. And I never looked at it that way. So, man, I appreciate that perspective. That's, that's pretty cool, actually. No, I'm glad to help. And you know what's funny, Victor, is that I'm sitting in meetings now. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a seller, but I'm also a buyer, too. It's one of my functions at the company. And so I'm sold stuff all the time. And, you know, you just sort of can't help it. It's like... <laughs> I know what you mean. Now I'm like, oh, look at the bullet points. Oh, you think I'm going to get to the bullet point is, on your it, slide? Isn't it hard to turn off that, that, that judge inside your head? <laughs> I know. And, and I, feel, I feel horrible because I, I would not appreciate being on the other side of that. It's just there's a, there's a neurosynapse type thing going on. I always tell, I tell people, I, I tell a story, which I'm not going to tell, but I, I make the, analogy, uh, the, the point that I said I'm conflicted. Part of me as a buyer is going, oh, I know what you're doing to me. And the other part of the show is going, oh, that was good. That was good. It's like, oh, you're evil. Oh, that was good. You're evil. Good. And so I think that's an interesting space. But I love the fact that you're talking about, you know, again, the strategic part and the deliberate part were the big ones for me. And I, like, I love the way you explain. You also talked about the challenge of virtual. And I want you to give me two points of view. From the seller's perspective, how is virtual impacting them? And buyer, the buyer point of view. And then you guys use the phrase, it's a different sensory experience. 
So give me the sensory experience, the challenge of virtual selling from the seller side and then from the buyer side. Yeah, so so you had mentioned it earlier in the conversation about some of the research that we did that led into the book. And we talked to buyers and sellers, over 500 in combination. And, and we asked a lot of questions around the things that were driving decisions, the things that they were failing at, succeeding at from their point of view. And what was interesting for us is sort of matching up the buyer-seller overlay, right? What are buyers want and what are sellers good at, right? Things like that, which led to the, the, the focus of the book. So you think about um, sellers, right? From the seller point of view, engagement was easily the number one thing. I can't keep people's attention. This media, I mentioned it before, this medium is working against me. My tech is terrible. My overall vibe and feeling is just way lower than it was when I had live meetings and I could show up and I could, you know, tie the tie or put on the best clothes and sort of be sharp, right? So that sharpness is gone and therefore the, um, the engagement from a seller's point of view was really tough. From a buyer's point of view, the things that bother them and annoy them, technology number one, not even close, right? Number one. So I get on a meeting and we spend 10 minutes trying to get everybody's sound and lighting and all that to work, right? Everything, everything that prevents a meeting from happening in a professional way. And then what buyers said in terms of what, what sellers are not necessarily successful at in a virtual world, simple things like needs discovery. Simple, and I say simple knowing that there's books and volumes written about these things, but I would imagine that in a um, non-virtual world, sellers would not make the same claim, that a needs discovery session is not something that they would notice is going poorly. Right. So needs discovery and, you know, certainly the idea that the buyer is looking for good ROI information, good cases, and it wasn't happening. It isn't happening. And so sellers and buyers gap, the biggest gap of anything that we found was ROI, right? The, the, the buyer wants to see ROI. The seller is not providing it in a virtual selling in the way that they need to. And, and the number that are close, but that one is 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 easily number one. That's interesting. I was I was listening to a uh, a webinar the other day, and I I apologize because I don't remember the guy's name, uh, but I think it was from Gartner, and he said something interesting when he was talking about sales engagement platforms, and he said something to the effect that buyers are evolving faster than sellers are evolving in terms of catching up to how they buy. And that the reason these uh, sales engagement platforms exist is because there's this gap, and that's the gap filler, because right. it allows them some more tools. And so you just triggered me when you said that, because I, I think it's really interesting how the two points of view are coming to an interesting head. I think sellers today, because they're not in the room, Dave, they're, they're feeling that insecurity, that anxiety, mm -hmm. because it's digital, man. It's, it's binary ones and zeros, analog gone. And I think they're having a hard time, or I think they're using it as a justification for not closing deals because I'm not there. And so talk to me about that. You know, what are, what are some of the excuses these people, are, these salespeople are putting up now that you're going, nah, I don't know if I buy that. Give me some myths here. Yeah, I mean, great question because uh, some of this is just anecdotal. What we hear is we talk to people. I, I, I was at a sales meeting the other day. We've been doing a couple of sales meetings to just sort of check in on, you know, how are you doing? I love seeing a whole group of sales folks 
show up in the Brady Bunch style. And immediately the first thing they say is, how's my lighting? Right. How, how, how do I look? Right. And, and so by you the go way, by the way, for, for, for those too young to know what he's talking about, when he says Brady Bunch style, there was a show called the Brady Bunch. Here's a story, a lovely lady and a guy who three lovely girls and three lovely kids. And they would show this, all this little, what all these little thumbnails of all the kids and everything on one screen, which you see on zoom. Anyway, FYI. There you go. Uh, uh, so, um, the myths, right? So I, I just ask questions, you know, what's going on in your world? What's going on with buyers? And, you know, how's it going for you? And, you know, I think there's still the fatigue, as you mentioned before, of these meetings are just hard to have, right? I can't get people's attention. If I get five people, I'm doing an initial discovery meeting and I have a little group that's a buying group and we're, we're not that familiar with each other. We're not into the depth of we're building a case, but even those first two meetings, I see people fading out. They're turning their video off. They started with video on, one had it on, one had it off. Like, how do I get this tight and get a really good meeting to happen? So I think that there's still a number of people who, you know, when you say the the myths, it's just like, I don't even know how to run a meeting in this medium that's effective. Forgetting about value prop and all the things that you need to do, it's, it's the meeting management itself. So that's still a problem that people are sort of, folding the tent on, which is it's the, it's the buyer's fault. Like if you show up to a meeting, can't you put the video on so I can talk to you and see you? Um, and I always ask for the, I always ask for the video on. Well, my response to that is in your invite, did you say I'm video on, it would make for a better meeting. Does that work for you? Right. It's a simple sort of ask. And And, and by the way, few people are going to say no. If any, you know what I mean? The majority are going to just say, yes, of course, let's do that. By the way, you said something interesting and your phrase, your phrasing is very interesting because it's almost like a juxtaposition, almost like a contradiction, but not, is that you got to make space in the conversation, but you got to keep the meeting tight. I mean, if you think about those two phrases together, you know what I mean? Because you got to do more within less time because of what you talked about engagement. Let me, let's hit on engagement. Let's, let's kind of go that way because what is that friction? And I think you guys had some studies on engagement points, like the maximum number of people in a meeting. So for yeah. yeah, there's two there's two major points around engagement uh, that are worth talking about. So one is uh, something called the engagement threshold, which we talk about in the book a lot. Engagement threshold is essentially the level at which you either lose or gain somebody's attention, right? And in a live meeting, the engagement threshold is X. Wait. Yeah, so don't give the answer. All right, so if you listen to this podcast, I want you to have in mind, what do you think the engagement level is for the number of people you should have in a meeting? Have a number in mind. Dave, sorry. Just want to give a little game of fun. No, that's okay. No, good showmanship. I get it. (laughs) So we are, uh, we are engagement threshold. We're at a certain level in a live meeting. In a virtual meeting, the engagement threshold is higher, meaning you have to do more to keep somebody's attention in a virtual meeting. And when you start to lose them, right, in order to get them back, you have to go through an entire re-engagement process. So we have a rule that is the, um, you know, the, the 33 rule. And so 30 seconds to gain attention and three minutes to hold it. And then you have to repeat the cycle. And the second part of this engagement piece, and then we'll talk about engagement strategies in a moment. The second part of this is called the Ringelman effect. And the Ringelman effect is essentially the multiplier that says the more people in a meeting, the higher the engagement threshold becomes for any individual because of, you know, essentially the, the, the social element of 
wait a minute, there's 14 people in this meeting. I'm not going to speak at all. I'm, I'm fading. I'm checking emails, right? I, I, you, you can- By the way, I got, I got to pause you on this because I, I never heard of the Ringelman effect to you until you wrote it in the book. By the way, just that plus the engagement piece was like, just like, like I said, gold. But when the Ringelman effect, the best way to look at it is, a, and I did a small little podcast on this, David. I don't know if you mm-hmm. just on that. It's, it's two people playing tug of war, pulling on a rope. But right. if you add more people on each side of the rope, everybody contributes less. Kind of a ringleader yes. effect. The more people involved, I'm pulling the rope, everybody contributes less. And what Dave is saying, because it took me, and I'm only repeating because it took me a while to wrap my brain around what you guys were saying, is that the more people you get involved, the more people kind of pull back because they don't see themselves being able to, needing to contribute as much. So which Absolutely. Means, there you go. Go. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, think of there's plenty of uh, analogies. Think of the, the, the projects you did in college when you had you know, eight people on the project, there's always one person hiding and there's always one person leading. And, you know, if you had 10 people, there'd be two people hiding, you know, that kind of thing. And so you get these meetings and it's all good intentions, right? We're not trying to demean anybody. It's just human nature um, that if you're in a virtual meeting and there's a lot of people in the meeting, you're going to be less engaged if you are a person who's apt to be disengaged easily. And so the idea strategically on, on how to solve to both of these is, to my earlier point around engagement strategy, 30 seconds to gain attention, right? Use people's names, change up the slides, add whiteboarding, um, add some mysterious different thing that will charge people up that they've never seen before, something exotic. It's, it's not about tricks and you know smoke screens and so forth. It's strategic thought around having a lot of different engagement um, oh. methods. By the way, they could be they could be questions. You throw a piece of data, throw up a piece of insight, whatever. Yeah, it may be. yeah there's so there, there's twenty different things that you can do. The idea is that you've got to increase the frequency and think about this, you know, thirty second, three minute effect, and not let two minutes and fifty nine seconds go by and say, "Oops, time to flip the slide." Right? You've got to just have a pacing to these meetings and a thought process around it to keep engagement and avoid the large pack meeting if you can. Right. Avoid the large pack meeting if you can. And if you have it, you're going to be sweating that one. You've got to work your way through it and make sure everybody is accounted for. Use names, do polls. Right. What are good things to do in in larger meetings? Polls, uh, breakouts. Right. We can we can name all strategies, but it's, it's, it's that kind of thought process. So, so this is some good tactical stuff people can take away because I, I think that's what I also liked about the book. There was some real tactical stuff you can take away. Some books are just ethereal, you know, up in the ether somewhere and you're like, well, what do I do with this? They tell me what, but they don't give me the how. And so, you know, your, your 30 second, three minute. And can I add a three to that one, which is try to keep it to three people before you yes. start, you know. So I, I would look at it that way, right? Just so people, you don't exceed a certain threshold. So if you can just kind of keep the 333, that's the rain group's phrase. You, by the way, you can have that three men at the end of that. Okay. I was going to ask you for for licensing rights perpetually. <laughs> but, right. but that's how. By the way, that was my 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 memory tool for that. You mm. know, when I saw that, I go, okay, so three is the ideal number. Beyond that, as you say, you struggle. When you get to twelve, that's really struggling. Now you were going to talk about some strategies on engagement. Did you want to go into that deeper? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and there's chapters and chapters in the book on this. So let's let's put it into a couple of categories. One is collaboration. Um, and so collaboration is the ability to draw your buyer into the process and co-create something. So in terms of engagement, there's probably no better way to get somebody to lean in. And using names and doing all those things, 
are good attention getters, but having somebody on the other end of the meeting produce something with you, let's whiteboard this together. I'm going to annotate right on the slide. Let's do it together. Tell me what to write. How did I do? Right? Creating a case for change with your buyer collaboratively is probably the best way to not just get their attention, but to get their buy-in. And so, you know, to the extent that that's an attention-holding exercise, it belongs right in the middle of the sales cycle, right? When yeah. can, I add, can I add something, not to interrupt, but I just want to add no, this. Please do. The, the, there's people out there who maybe never use Zoom, but there's a whiteboarding effect. But there's different ways you can whiteboard. You can connect your iPad and do whiteboarding from one side, or you can do it through the screen sharing. If you're a salesperson, here's what I'm going to recommend. I'm sure Dave's with me on this, is you just got to practice this before you do it. Just practice it. And by the way, we were all clumsy at one time or another when we first played with it. So learn how to use, you know, again, the whiteboard. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, 100%. So uh, two quick things on that. One is I was at a sales discussion the other day with a team and they'd never white, no one had ever whiteboarded before. And their immediate thought process was, uh, what's the best whiteboarding tool? And and my answer was, don't care. Whatever tool works for you is the that's answer. The uh, that's the tool because it's not about the tool. Although you know, I'm sure many would argue that some are better than others, and that that's that's fair. But the idea is is what you're doing with it and the process. You could whiteboard using a Word doc and essentially just set it up and annotate a meeting and create the whiteboarding effect. And it would still be impressive to a buyer if you did it well. And so the idea that you're exposing a shared medium of some sort, whiteboarding, and there's different ways to whiteboard. You can use a stylus and a pen with an iPad, or you can type right into it. I'm sure there's voice to whiteboard, all of that. But ideally, you know, in terms of how it works is because you've set it up properly. You've, you've done your research so that you're not just, it's not open white space. You're not talking about, you know, let's, let's start from scratch on ideas. Hey, I did some research on you guys. I thought about three ways that this software might help you out. I've categorized them in advance on the whiteboard. I'd love to get your ideas so we can stretch these out. A, did I get this right? Are these the right categories to be thinking? Let, let's love that. Say, love that. So you enter into the conversation in a certain way and the whiteboard has this really nice effect of saying, yeah, you did get it right. Or on this one, I'm not quite sure about that. This is what we're thinking, right? And all of a sudden you've got an artifact, you've got a process. Engagement is the last thing you need to worry about when you're doing it that way. Yeah, and you, by the way, you've, and I'm stating the obvious. You, you've shown the customer you've thought about their problem. And two, you've picked a point of departure for the conversation, which is really the toughest part, right? How do you get people to actually conversate and do that? That's really interesting. I like that. I like that. By the way, uh, you had another stat in there that I was like, whoa, okay. The fall of B2B. And the numbers were, uh, in 2015, there were 4.5 million salespeople. And that dropped by a million uh, to 3.5, I assume, in 2020. It's like a 4% drop, whatever the number was. Uh, What's going on? What is going on? Well... I think, and, and just to clarify, you know, the, the, the number of salespeople, so there's, there's a lot of buying that can happen more efficiently, right, through, through the web, right? There's, there's sales engineering, there's, there's all these different sort of secondary, we'll call them secondary for the purposes, purposes of the discussion, functions that sort of wrap around the purchase, 
the commoditizing of it makes the salesperson's job sort of less and less because of the web and because of all these things that can that can create efficient buying situations for certain buyers. So it's not that there's less buying going on. There's less formal selling in the way that it used to happen. Um, but I do think that the place for sellers is to be the organizer of all of that. And don't let it become commoditized. Don't let it get a, to RFP. Don't let the purchasing department dictate the purchase, right? There's, there's a proactivity that has to happen there. So I'm not sure if that totally answers the question, but I think it's, you know... It's an interesting trend. Yeah. But, but I like what you said is that the buyers are still buying. It's just how they're buying. Yes. And I, and I, and I think it's interesting just as if we zoom back and look at the market, you know, anything that's commoditized, on the, let's look at the lower end of the commodity spectrum, all that stuff's going to go online, right? But as right. you move towards the complex sale, I think salespeople talk about the evolution of consultative selling, right? That becomes more important. And tools like virtual selling, these tools that we're using, make you that much better to deal with those type of sales. That's kind of how I would kind of parse it. No, I agree. Okay. Yep. So you had also the, uh, uh, the the winning factors, you know, in a presentation. Uh, educate me. You talked about collaborate with me and then persuade me that we could achieve this win. Yes. You know, and so I thought the the educate and collaborate was kind of a, an obvious one, but it, what, what do you see that's missing today? Okay, so now let's just kind of reset this. Everybody's read your book, right? Awesome book. Salesperson going, I read the book. Now what do I do? Okay, I know I got to get a nice studio, right? Or at least a nice lighting camera, whatever it may be. And but what's the pushback? Why are some people? I, I feel when I talk to salespeople, I get excuses. And what do you think is holding them back psychologically? Yeah, I mean, it's a heck of a question. So anything I say is probably a theory because I haven't studied the psychology of what's holding people back. And, you know, but I'm sure I, you have an idea. You see, you've been around. I'm, I'm sure you're starting to get a sense of what may or may not be happening. I guess that's what I'm looking for, really. What do yeah, you say? I agree. And I don't know. So we've talked a little bit about the difficulty of the medium and the medium being just a hard place to operate in. But I think to some degree, what I'm about to say is, is general of all sales. And that is making the, so, so sellers in my mind are uh, trying to create change, right? Change agents. And so you are trying to convince a buyer that they need to do something differently than the status quo. And you need to convince them, A, that that situation exists. There's a good rational reason why. And then beyond that, that they should do that with you as opposed to anyone else. And they should do it right now. And that if they do that, there's going to be a result that has really solid ROI. And so we call that at Rain Group going from a current state to a new reality, right? Trying to bring people from status quo to something that you're developing. And I alluded to it earlier, and I think, you know, part of the salesperson's job is to help create that new reality for the buyer so that it's not just I'm solving an obvious problem and I'm going to tick the box. So we, the buyer, know we need software because we need to do this. And I'm going to look at my category and evaluate them, line them up, put them in an RFP, check off functionality and whichever one I like the best and has the best price I buy. That's not a new reality scenario. That's, that's just problem solving. And so the idea that you can stretch this and create some story 
a story that talks about um, a storyline that suggests that there's so much more that can be done. Or if you're still staying in the category of solving a problem, that you alone have the solution that differentiates and is going to make sure it works, right? Failure is pretty common when it comes to purchasing certain products and services. So to develop that story is complex. To develop that story virtually, there are some tools that we talk about in the book, um, a buyer change blueprint, right? Helping to build a case for change through a series of interactions and having that case show up well. We're talking about literally a one slide case that can that can tell the story and that covers all the things that I just discussed is possible. That's one of the nice things about the tightness of virtual selling and the way that you can present things. But that opportunity, like what could happen in the future, it's that blueprint for change that sellers can develop that will really stretch this from, from sort of typical selling to a totally different place. Are, are you seeing, and we'll go back to the, the, the tight comment, are you seeing an ideal time? And I know this is kind of, you know, it's anecdotal as you say, but is there an ideal time for a meeting? And I know it depends on what stage we're at in the sales process, but you know, are you starting to see a time where attention spans fall off or something of that nature, anything like that? You know, I confess to not studying that. I, I, I don't data, so I don't want to make something up in that regard. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the main thing is to make enough time so that you have a good meeting. So some of the worst meetings that I've had are when you run out of time or you're having meeting and the person says, yep, I've got a hard stop in 15 minutes. And then the next 15 minutes are just the person waiting for the meeting to end. Right. right. You know, I, I don't know what the right time is. I'm sure there are studies and maybe we can comment later on that. Um, but I just think add extra time so that you can keep, keep the meeting, the engagement going enough, but that you don't leave, lose people for the last 10 because they got back to back. Yeah. I'm starting to see, you know, like this, this shrinking of time that they're willing mm -hmm. to allocate. And I think 30 minutes seems to be the sweet spot. Totally anecdotal, right? You know, because I, I think they're saying, make your case in 15, 20 minutes, and then 10, 10 minutes for questions and answers. And if, I'm wondering if, you know, if the data one day will come out and say, you know what, if we plan around that, then we can execute more efficiently around that. Mm -hmm. Just a thought. The, uh, I interviewed another, uh, uh, John Barrows. Uh, I interviewed him uh, last week. Uh, he's worked at a lot of companies. Good guy, great interview. And he said something interesting, and I kind of knew this already, but it, it, he put a, a finer point on it, and I want to get your perspective on it. I know it's just a perspective. He said, look, 40% of these jobs are not coming back. These sales jobs are not coming back because companies are realizing I can sell virtually as effective or not more effective and, and drive my cost of sales down, which makes me more profitable. Any thoughts on that as a, I guess, trend? Yeah, it's hard to comment on the sales jobs are going to go away because it's a zero-sum game. And because the cost of selling went down, I'm going to try to get more efficiency and I'm going to drop the total number of salespeople. I would look at it the opposite way, which is, my gosh, if I can have more productivity out of my sales team because they're traveling less and they're leaning in more and they, have, they can do more outreach, more meetings, just the numbers just add up differently. And I've got zero cost when it comes to travel and entertainment right now. And maybe in the future, you'll have less. Right. Instead of saying that that's a, uh, you know, reduce the cost of sales per, per, per dollar sold, uh, it's more, how do I grow? Scale. How do I scale that? 
How do I scale that, right? I already have that the, some certain costs embedded. Certain costs are going to go away. How do I redeploy the sales team so they're hitting marks that we never thought we could hit? That's okay, I am, offici- I am officially confirming. I am officially confirming on this podcast that Dave is an optimist. I dig his glass half full of... <laughs> Gotta be ready to go. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. You're glad. No, Victor, you look at the other way, man. That's so cool. Because I, I love that perspective, right? Because that, that means throw more money at it. My cost of sales is going down. Wait a minute. You mean I can sell more with less people? Let's add some more people. Two different ways of looking at it. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's funny. By the way, when you look at... And we'll start wrapping up here. When you look at... Let's look at managers for a second who are managing these salespeople. Uh, what are you seeing on the management side of having to try to coach slash manage virtually and then train them virtually? Yeah, very difficult. Very difficult, right? So one of the areas we talk about in the book, and it's a category that should not be ignored, is that managing oneself, right? The management of and the discipline of how to approach selling in general is a category that's always existed, but now it's got an exponential effect. Imagine sellers who, to some degree, were regimented around, you know, output, outreach, sales, et cetera. Sales has a lot of numbers associated with it. But the choices around how to use time were not always that governed. And so you think about a salesperson who's kind of lost in, how do I spend my day? I have a whole day ahead of me. I have all these things to do, and I'm in my house now. And, you know, I can start doing whatever I feel like doing because I control it. It's a different world, right? Controlling one's time. And thinking about what's the greatest impact activity that I can do right now today? What is going to be the one thing that I need to accomplish today? If I don't do that, the rest of my day is just not, it's not as important. Do I know that? Have I thought about it in advance, right? So we have a whole section of the book that talks about things like GIA, et cetera. So this is where managers come in. There's an accountability component to getting the thing that's most important done in any given day. It's harder to do when you're working at home. Managers have to be able to lean into that and help their sellers to understand that, to calendar things differently. So I'm getting into some real bits and bites of how to do it. But to the extent that a sales manager's job has changed a little bit because they're thinking about, I've got 20 people on my team. Is everyone hitting their GIA today? If I got 19 out of 20, that's a good day. Right? So, I mean, but, but go into that deeper. I, I'm willing to go just a little deeper in that because I, I want, again, the folks listening to this have that tactical stuff, right? How as a manager do I, you say, lean into that? How do I lean into making sure my salesperson is hitting those high leverage activities? Give me some tactics. What do they typically do? What's best practices? Sure, sure. So take your team and have everybody uh, have an accountability partner, right? Everyone on the team has an accountability partner. So a manager is going to get watered down to the extent that they can't track all of this all the time, right? So let's just use some, some, some technique. Everyone has an accountability partner. The accountability partner works with their partner on things like, did you cover your GIA today? Um, what are the things that you're stuck on? What, what do you need in order to um, get over that stuck? You know, things that are pretty simple and pretty tactical, but there's a rhythm that you're trying to create around weekly check-ins, frequent check-ins on certain things getting completed. And so there's a task orientation that a sales manager can use the power of the numbers of their team and the accountability of colleague peer-to-peer work that, you know, and, and, and this is not, this is not feel-good stuff. This is, did you get it done? Right. And, you know, it, it, feel-good is great too, but this is, this is not meant to be a motivational tool. This is meant to be an actual accountability. 
And it goes up when you have to be accountable to somebody else on your team. It just does. Yeah. And so, it really does. I, I, you know, it's funny because I used to advocate a partner. Now I advocate three in a group. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't know why. I think there's a dynamic difference there. When you got three people, there's no collaboration going on. Like, you know, we'll just say you did and I did and more. Yeah, I mean, fair point, fair <laughs> point. I, I think the other thing that is useful for those teams, and let's call it teams of three, is uh, we just had a meeting and we all went through the fact that our staging, our lighting, and our backgrounds are not up to snuff. And we got a checklist, right? So you want to practice on me, I'll practice on you. Like this becomes a, a, a training and development issue, but not in a formal way. It's in a collaboration mode where those types of improvements that are iterative can take place underneath. Sales managers need to launch those types of efforts. And stick- I love that because it's, it's like you, you, launch is a great word. It's like a little perpetual machine within that little three-person three person unit. They can just keep doing it, the role play. You know, I'll, I'll borrow this from uh, the person who wrote the book on sprints these short meetings you have in 15 minutes or whatever. And I think that's also another great tool, right? You schedule something with a three-person team and you go, all right, 15 minutes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about an update. We're going to look at what the problems are. And then the last five, maybe, uh, you know, your action items. Here's what we're going to get done. Here's the report out. Done. Go. 15. And are you finding that these short minutes, uh, shorter minute meetings are very effective? Because I'm finding them very effective, actually. Yeah, I, I- I think the, the, so they're very effective if you follow the convention, which is don't do anything else. We are, we are, we are task switchers, right? And we've become really good at it. And there's no such thing as multitasking because you can't do two things as well as you do one, right? So to the extent that you say, okay, I'm going to commit to 20 minutes. We're going to do this with this team. And my phone is literally in another room, right? It is nowhere near me. I cannot task switch. That, that's the key to sprinting is, is actually focusing on one thing at a time. And, you know, if you studied yourself and you sort of filmed yourself for a day, you'd be amazed at how many times you get diverted. Uh, And, you know, you can't sprint for three hours, by the way. You have to do these short bursts. But planning them and doing them and staying committed to the way you do it is a a pretty effective way to work. That's interesting. I just, by the way, I just read a study. It was like, we check our phones 150 to 200 times per day. Yeah. And I was like, What? And it, it could be something as simple as just you got a notification, you look at it, that counts. And that's amazing. So I love when you say to put that aside. All right, we're wrapping up here. So Dave, uh, give the folks a sense of what's in the book, Virtual Selling, and give them your best sales pitch of why they should get this book. Besides the fact that Victor said, get the book. Well, Victor, I have to say, you called us the M&M of a virtual selling. And that was like, the most awesome thing. <laughs> and my, 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 my takeaway from that was that, you know, there's some grit and depth to what we tried to do with the book, right? We, we went for it in terms of not just theory, but a lot of practice, takeaways, checklists, things you can do, right? We want to help people change their behavior so they can be successful in this medium. I, I think, you know, when we talk about what makes us us, we've got research that backs it. We've got years and years and years of selling expertise in the people that, that, that write it and author it so that you're speaking the language of a seller. And then it is a practical field guide, right? That was the vibe we were going for is we weren't trying to rate Shakespeare here. We wanted it to feel like a, a field guide for practitioners. So you could say in chapter 10, I read this thing on page 123 and I'm going to try it today and it will work. 
And we have. I didn't, I didn't think about. I didn't think about right. that. You're actually right. It is written like a field guide. I didn't think about yeah. it that way. I mean, that's a, that. That's when we we started conceiving the book. We said like field guide, right? So style. We, we you know substance over style. I think I I hope people think it's well written and easy to read. We weren't trying to write a novel. We were trying to write a field guide. So the field guide component of this, we believe, and this is the final pitch that if you read the book and you follow parts of it, any of it, one thing that it's going to help change your behavior, your fortunes, and that there's a really big opportunity out there for people who are willing to change. The opportunity is what, 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 what drives it. And so we're excited by that. We're hearing good feedback and, um, you know, any way we can help, we're, we're just, that's what we're here for. Yeah, it's, it's a great book because, again, I didn't detect a lot of fluff in there. Do you know what I mean? It was like, you know, this thing was lean. It was like all meat, you know, as I'm going through it. And, you know, you it's almost like you, it's almost like a buffet too. It was almost like a la carte, Matt. All right, I can use that. I can yes. use that. Let me try yes. that. And I found myself going back to the book again. Said, what was that again? What was this again? And I bet that you'll be referring to it over and over again. So on that note... Dave Shaby, thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the Sales Influence Podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take it. That's it for the Sales Influence Podcast. Leave me some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you find this podcast. Also, when you get a chance, after you pick up this book, check out the Sales Velocity Academy. You know the deal. Go to salesvelocityacademy.com. And remember, sell it ain't hard virtually when you know how. Take care. And we're wrapped. How's that, man? I tried to make it exciting, man. That's great. Was that fun for you? Oh, I enjoy these. I I, I enjoy it because I think we don't have to be so uptight about this stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? That it's, it's, uh, and I try to give it that little something that people kind of say, I just want to listen to this guy, some nice conversations. And you were just flowing, man. I was loving it. I hate when I have to pull stuff. You know what I mean? From people. So when I get somebody just goes, ah, blah. And then your, your stuff was so, so uh, you're going to love it. I, I think it came out really good. Cause like I said, oh, good. I, I usually get a high bar, on. Victor. I mean, you're, you're, you're just, uh, you know, it's as good as it gets. So I hope I can Thank keep it. That's all. That's all. Dude, you're going to love it, man. You're going to love it. So uh, I'll have this uh, available by like, in less than a week or something. I'm turning these around really quickly, but you know, in all sincerity, man, it, it was going through the book was like, okay, this is real stuff. I'm, you know, I got an engineering background, so I hate the, I hate this. You know what I mean? And the stuff yeah, that's yeah. so obvious. And so when you guys went through it, I was like, wow, this is some really good content. But there's like, it was like so much great content. You had to kind of, I had to keep stopping and to absorb it. That was the only difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what we're doing now as a company, and this is what we'd been working on before that we're now just sort of catching up is all the training IP that goes with it. Right. So it's one thing to read a book and say, yeah, I get that idea and I see how they executed it. And these are really, you know, two good pages of advice. Now I got to try it. But, you know, practicing your skill outside of the field of battle is what training is all about, right? So we're trying to create virtual uh, selling modules that really just tackle all these issues that are in the book and can be served out in these 90-minute chunks so that mm -hmm. you can work with a facilitator. But more than anything else, practice it. It's just unnatural for people to say, you know, How's my rapport? <laughs> it's not. How's my rapport? Yeah, it's not, it's not the way that people think. They read the book and they go, yeah, now it's in my head, but are they actually doing it well? 
And so that's the the next stage for us is to is to bring it to the market. And and we've been doing it right. We like since COVID, it, the demand is is really high for this. Um, yeah. We're trying to do is package it in a way where it's really really tight. My point on all of this is we are getting down to engineering like diodes here, right? The whole thing that we're talking about comes down to, all right, when you're annotating and you're thinking about how to annotate, this is the way to do it, right? Step A, step B, like it is really, really granular. And we want people to just feel like that, that's something I've never seen before. I'm going to try it that right? Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think it's, you almost have to choreograph the moves. For people. Yeah, yeah. For them and, to feel comfortable. And let them feel comfortable and do it and say, oh, okay, I've never, I've never stopped to think about when I do annotation. How's the person on the other end receiving that? What is their response likely to be? How do I sort of play chess with this? Right? So, so we're, we're in some depth here. Yeah, uh, okay. So much fun. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we want to make 